like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, and in this episode, I will be continuing my my plunge into the simulacrum, Dick's 1964 novel. Now, this is a novel with a lot of moving parts, a lot of things going on. And uh, having gone through nine chapters of this in the previous episodes, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss of how to how to even begin to try to summarize it. But I think the best way to go do this is to to look at where the major characters are, because you know, in this novel, we really have a lot of different stories uh, going on kind of in the same world, and they're all kind of running parallel. And while they intersect from time to time, they're, you know, these characters are kind of doing their own thing. So um, let me first try to sum up what happened in the first nine chapters in case you're just joining us. Um, but I do urge you to go back and, and read along with me and, and go back to my first episode on the simulacrum before for jumping in at this point. But if you don't want to do that, that that's fine. I'll, I'll try to, to get you up to speed. Um, so one of our central locations in the simulacrum is, well, of course, it's set in the 21st century. Um, it's set sometime after uh, a major war uh, in an era called Age of Barbarism, and that includes World War II. Um, but there was a nuclear war at some point, and the world ba basically remained bipolar. There's a, a kind of a Soviet sphere, which has its capital, capital in Warsaw, and, and the Western sphere, the U.S. sphere, it's called the United States of Europe and America at this point, and that's based in, in Germany. Um, I don't know if it's because the original capitals were destroyed, perhaps. Um, but our, our settings mostly pretty much all, yeah, it's all in the USCA, uh, although a few different locations. Um, the head of state of the USCA is a, is a simulacrum named the Deralta. Uh, this is only known to the kind of the ruling class of this society called the Gays, and they, it's because they have the Gemenis, which is the knowledge. And this knowledge has two parts. One is that the Deralta is a simulacrum. The other part of the knowledge is that the Deralta's wife, Nicole Thibodeau, is an actress. Uh, and she's this one's actually like replaced a previous woman who played Nicole or, or was the real Nicole. Now, the way this works is people vote for the Deralta who will then marry Nicole Thibodeau. And because Thibodeau's is constant presence in this society, a lot of the men, you know, have this very complex relationship with her. First, she's very she's really hot. And so everyone kind of has a sexual attraction to her and fantasizes about her sexually, at least many of the men do but they also have this kind of view of her as a mother as a mother to us all and so virtually all the men that we meet or many of them at least have have this kind of oedipus complex vis-a-vis uh, -vis nicole nicole thibodeau but this kind of becomes a a, a stabilizing force uh in in the society and helps keep the, the the hierarchies now the people who don't know the truth of the political system are called the bays and they're just like the masses and their biggest dream for most of these people is to win talent shows at their local level and then get a seen by a talent scout for the White House and then get a chance to perform for Nicole. Um, so that's that's kind of the closest we have to a kind of vision of upward mobility. It's it's very much a reality show show kind of scheme. Now, we have a lot of male characters here who seem aimless, who their only hope is maybe to see Nicole. They're, they don't have jobs. 
they they feel very emasculated they they live in a matriarchy so i mean at least a, a titular matriarchy with nicole at top and many men come out of this feeling very emasculated so we have almost kind of like a, an alt-right uh, movement you know called the sons of job that attracts a lot of these alienated men who really don't feel they have a place in the world or a place of, of significance um, even the characters who aren't that drawn to that, like one we'll, we'll meet called Vince Strike Rock, you know, he feels very put out by his wife who who recently left him and he can't get over her. So even characters who aren't like fascinated with Nicole have other women in their lives that that seem to be causing the trouble. So um, emasculation is a big theme in in the simulacrum. And I think these are really interesting. As I talked about in my last episode, I think there's really interesting parallels between the way men are described here and the way uh some people on the alt-right and some followers of Jordan Peterson see kind of the influence of feminism in our modern society and then kind of blame feminism for the current state of alienation that a lot of young young people feel. And this becomes a real recruiting tool for, for um, right-wing movements. But anyways, that's the overall setting we have. And then we just have a set of characters doing different things in this world. We, we meet Nicole. Um, of course, uh, she's a major character. And her main purpose in this novel, I guess, is to give us a window into the central government. And she's dealing with all kinds of different factions within the government, trying to competing for power. Um, but her main goal is to, she's dealing with this plot within the government to bring back Hermann Goering from the Third Reich in order to basically recruit him and then send him back and use him to kind of dethrone Hitler. And the goal there is to keep the Third Reich from, from collapsing, right? The assumption is you know, the reason the Third Reich fell is because of Hitler's uh, bad mistakes. So they, they tried to assassinate Hitler before, and now they're going to try to kind of redirect the Third Reich into a different direction. Maybe not to be a murderous war machine, but maybe into another kind of imperial uh, center, something that maybe will last a thousand years. And this society certainly does have fascist elements in it. So that that's what's going on in her, her story. Of course, Nicole is just an actress, so she's not really the true Nicole. And it's very interesting how the actress, you know, we don't know what she's really like as a person. There's only one moment where she thinks about herself as her true identity, Kate. She's fully engulfed the character of Nicole in her personality, in her behavior. And as a result of this, she does nasty things. She assassinates people. She suppresses, um, you know, forces that might be against her. So it's, it's an interesting uh, side to there's a question of political powers like does the position make the person or does the person make the position I guess then back in the Obama years I would have said obviously the position makes the person right like Obama pretty much a good guy progressive kind of guy certainly cared a lot about civil rights you know passes no major civil rights legislation does really not much to improve the lives of African Americans doesn't really do anything about mass incarceration continues American Empire all this stuff we wouldn't expected him to do uh, but then we have Trump who clearly is not being really made transformed by the office he seems to be the same person he was when he ran for office so you know I don't know what to make of this it just is what it is um, another thing going on in the government is that they recently they want to dump the Deralta because Nicole doesn't like him and they want to basically kill him off. He's a simulacrum so they can kill him whenever they want and they want to make a new one, but they want to shift the contract for making it from the company called Carp, um, Carp von Schonen, I think, and switch it to Maury Frau Zimmer's company, which is a smaller firm, which is respected for its craftsmanship, but is a very, very small firm. It really just has a couple of employees. Um, so that's going on. Uh, then we have 
Another major location is the Abraham Lincoln Apartments, and we have three major characters who dwell here. Uh, the first two are the Strike Rock brothers, Vince Strike Rock, who works for the company that had the previous contract for making the Der Alta. Um, he just divorced his wife, Julia. And then we have his brother, Chick, who has kind of picked up on the rebound Vince's ex-wife, but he's has a lot of personal problems in his life. First, he's got to deal with this new woman in his life. He, but he's also just lost his job at Maury Frauzimmer Associates, and this is right before they get the new contract. So they think they're going out of business. So he loses the job, and he thinks about just going off to Mars. In fact, he gets the idea by talking to Dr. Egon Superb, who's the last working psychotherapist in the world, who's been ordered by the government or a government agent to take every new patient that you know comes forth so kind of a running joke in this novel is all these people who just code at Egon Superb because he's the last psychotherapist and Egon Superb has to take them even if their problems are kind of silly uh, in fact Vincent and Chick agree to go to see Superb to have him deal with you know who's going to get Julia basically negotiate this uh, you know can can the brother sleep with the ex-wife of, of, of the brother um, so that's going on. Um, another character from the Abraham Lincoln Apartments is really the example of the emasculated, weekend, purposeless male, and that's a man named Ian Duncan, who kind of fails. He's a loser. He fails at everything he does. Um, but he's good at uh, playing a little classical jug. He, so he plays the folk music jug, but he plays it with you know classical tunes on it, and he does it with his old buddy Al Miller. And with really nothing left in his life, he goes to... Uh, Miller and begs him to give one last shot at performance. Uh, they go back to the Abraham Lincoln's apartment. They put on a performance and they use a simulacrum of a Martian psychic creature called the Palula. And they use that to influence the audience. And eventually they get invited to, to the White House. The other characters we have are a group of people. Uh, their na names are Nat Flieger, Molly, a young woman named Molly, and Jim Plank. And they're on a quest to kind of record Richard Congrosian before Richard Congrosian, uh, a famous musician who can play piano with his mind because he's a teak. They want to record him before like he kind of goes completely nuts because he's going insane. And they're on a quest to his house to really track down. I think he owes them a recording because these guys work for like a recording company. So they, they end up going to a kind of a slummy place where Congrosian lives. And it's a strange place for such a famous celebrity who played for the White House to live. And they find a bunch of weird stuff in this backwater, slummish, slummy part of, of the world. They find uh, like old gas stations. They find uh, a, the Sons of Job having an active movement. And it's run by a guy named um, Goltz. And they actually meet Goltz. And he tries to recruit Nat Flieger. And then, most interesting, they meet a group of people called Chubbers, who were, at first sight seem to be genetic radioactive mutants, but it turns out they're actually throwbacks. They're Neanderthals who have been biding their time for, for a millennium and have kind of formed their own community and are now maybe in a position to, to reassert themselves. Um, and then we have Richard Congrosian himself, the the musician who's basically in this novel experiencing progressive insanity and the reason he goes insane is because he the things he hears in advertisements he takes to be real so there's two advertisements we have that are examples of this one is you know kind of the do you smell advertisement buy deodorant and he hears this advertisement and the, and the advertisements come like little bugs and things that will play into your ear he hears that and he starts to really believe he has this intense body odor he calls it a phobic body odor 
And the other thing he starts to believe about himself is he's invisible because that's another advertisement. He hears is an advertisement that essentially says, you know, are you invisible? Do people not notice you? And, you know, then buy our product. He hears this and he starts to think he's going invisible too. So he's going completely nuts and he's got some kind of weird fascination and love, love for Nicole. He's got all kinds of Oedipus problems, Oedipus complex problems too. He sees Dr. Egon superb and tries to get help from him, but he doesn't want to meet people in person because he's afraid he's going to spread his phobic body odor. So he's got his old bizarre things going on. So that kind of is most of the characters. I, obviously there's a lot and it's not a very long novel, but Dick puts a lot of, of characters on the table and a lot of moving parts. And I think that's one of the things that might make this novel a bit hard to to read. But I think it also makes it a novel that you can come back to and catch new things. And, you know, I, in my recent rereading of this, the things I've really been catching are are really this this idea of the alienated male and their relationship with Nicole and the relationship with feminism and patriarchy and how much it reflects what we see now in some of the rhetoric coming out of the alt-right and, and, and to kind of the followers of people like Jordan Peterson. So I... If anyone has thoughts about this, I'd love to to engage people in 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 their thoughts on it. So, anyways, I guess with that, I'm just going to jump into the story, starting on page, uh, chapter eleven. Uh, we're getting to the point where Dick's able to start closing down some of the plot lines that he's opened up in the first half of of, of the novel. Um, so, I'm, but I'm going to start with chapter ten. Chapter ten um, has. Um, Four scenes, four short scenes. A lot of these chapters are broken up into a lot of short scenes, and this one has four four short scenes. So as chapter ten opens in the first scene, we're we're with Nicole, and she's recently they've recently pulled Herman Goering into their time from from the past. So this major Nazi leader, they've pulled him in, into the future, and it's, there's an interesting joke here because Goering, of course, thought of himself was so important, but. You know, pulling him into the future and changing the timeline it actually doesn't change history very much. So it kind of shows that he wasn't that important at the end of the day. So Dix throws in a little um, stab at at, at Gehring. Um Also in this scene is is Goltz. Goltz is the head of the Sons of Job and kind of the leader of this quasi-fascist movement. We also learn either here and I think maybe in a later chapter that he's actually part of the government. He's actually part of the Central Committee behind Nicole, the, the, the part of the government that the people don't see. Um, but at the same time, he's running this external movement against the Deralta. And we see that there's all this tension in the government, like the council doesn't always like, you know, the Deralta. And you have Pembroke, the police, who are trying to undermine Nicole, too. So Nicole's position is not that secure, despite the mass adoration she gets from the public. She's actually a very weak figure within the government itself. It seems the government keeps her around at their, at their will. Um, we learn how Goltz is able to stay alive despite leading this movement um, that's basically anti-government. And that's it. He uses the Lessinger principle. This is the time travel principle. This is the, the device that allows time travel in this novel, the Lessinger, von Lessinger principle. And he's allowed to basically see himself in different times. So he knows when he's going to die, knows when there's threats, and he's able to then change events as necessary to prevent himself from dying. Um, and they basically offer Gehring the deal. Um, and again, it, it really comes down to they want to convince Gehring that Hitler is going to destroy Germany and they're going to lose the war and therefore convince him to go back and then take action against just Hitler, against Hitler in order to keep the Third Reich intact. And as, as a previous conversation showed, the, the Israelis, you know, kind of tacitly give some kind of wink, wink support to this because they hope that this will save the lives of, of the Jews in the Holocaust. 
although that doesn't seem to be a major concern of the USEA in the, in this plot. It's it's more about manipulating the past and manipulating the history of the Third Reich. Um, but there is a lot of talk in this chapter about the danger of time travel, and you know the thing that you know how this really might screw up the timeline. Like they give him green weapons and he brings them back in the past. Maybe this will screw things up. Maybe you know the war will start anyways, and maybe the Nazis will win the war, which isn't quite what they want. So. You know, that's all here. Now, at some point, the the, the military police or the, the national I think it's the MP, the, maybe it's the national police, they come in under Pembroke and they, they see Goltz and they try to kill him because he's, you know, the leader of this anti-government force. But he's able to evade this using the von Lessing pr pr principle. And at one moment, Goltz is able to see the importance of congrosion in the future. And this is going to be foreshadowing uh, the important role of congrosion in the novel later on this this teak piano player who's going progressively insane over the course of the novel he's going to end up being a very crucial figure and Goltz sees a gets a sense of it as he he uses the lessing principle to move through time and that's that's just the first scene so it's mostly about gearing and the different factions and tensions within within the government and we start to see that Nicole's position is quite fraught with peril she's not as secure as she she has been. She's she, up to this point. She's been presented as a fairly strong in-command figure, and, and we learn that that's not really true here. That there's a lot of people that have power behind the scenes. Um, the second scene of chapter ten involves uh, Kingrosian, and Kingrosian, who now sees himself as fully invisible, he's heading towards A.G. Kemi. He's got several different agendas at A.G. Kemi. One is he wants to get a chemical, like a soap or something that will cure his phobic body odor. He also wants to contaminate Chimi because he blames them for his mental health problems. Because this chemical company, this pharmaceutical company, was behind the new law, the McPherson Act, which banned psychotherapy. So he kind of wants to get back at, at them. But he starts to think more and more about how much he wants to just maybe get off Earth altogether. And like other, many other men we meet in this novel, he thinks about going to Mars. And so he encounters a jalopy jungle. Uh, you know, these jalopy jungles seem to magically appear when people have thoughts of emigrating to, to Mars. It's not really explained why, whether it comes through psychic abilities or whether Looney Luke, who runs the jalopy jungles, has a Von Lessing device. I don't know. But he basically thinks that maybe a, maybe a new future is what I'm going to need to avoid my mental problems. So we get kind of an optimistic view of the frontier. And you know, yeah, the frontier becomes a depository for kind of these wasted lives. These people don't have a purpose. But, you know, there's still a lot of optimism with that. Like, maybe we can have a rebirth of freedom if we go to the frontier. In fact, he has a dialogue with the papula. These are these psychic uh, simulacrums that, that basically advertise the jalopies to people. And the jalopies, again, are one-way rockets that just take you to Mars, but they can't take you back. Uh, so they're like emigration on the cheap. And he asks the palupa, you know, Will people see me? You know, will I have the body odor there? And he says, there's no commercials on Mars. You will gradually shed your contamination there in that pure virgin environment. Enter the office, Mr. Congoshin, and speak to Mr. Miller, our sales representative. He's eager to serve you. He exists to serve you. Quote. So it becomes an advertisement again at the end, which is, I think, kind of, a, kind of a joke. He's saying, the great thing about Mars is there are no advertisements. And then he kind of uh, segues into an advertisement to, to Congoshin. Um, he goes in to see the sales re representative after all, and he runs into a character that we've met before, Chick 
Strike Rock, who previously has decided that he's going to give up on Earth too. So he talked to Egon Superb, really about how to deal with the fact that he's sleeping with Earth, his brother's ex-wife. And the advice he got is basically, why don't you leave Earth too? Um, and so he said, you know, he decided at that point to leave Julie, leave his job, which he's he just quit anyways, and and go to Mars. So he's there trying to negotiate buying a jalopy. And he recognizes, Chick recognizes Congrosian because Congrosian's a famous celebrity. And they chit-chat for a while. And eventually, Congrosian and Chick Strike Rock decide to emigrate together. They said, well, we'll get a slightly bigger jalopy. We'll go in together. We'll pool our resources. And we'll go together. And we can kind of be friends on Mars. So that's the plan. This is actually an issue, loneliness on Mars for emigres. In fact, Chick's major, his company he worked for, Frozimmer Associates, their main income came from making family simulacrums, which would be your neighbors on Mars. So the idea is you go to Mars, you set up your home, you're all alone, you're happy, you know, you can have your farm or whatever. But next door, there'll be robot neighbors, right, who won't do anything, but they'll, they'll be there for you when you need to talk to your neighbors, right? They're just there for company. So Chick and Congrosian decide to go together to, to Mars. The next thing we get is Janet. Janet's the works for Nicole. She's like the talent scout for Nicole, and she arranges all the talent shows in the White House. And she gets a call from A.G. Chemi. Uh, basically, they're talking about Congrosian, who seems to have like run away, and we've just seen him. Of course, he's off trying to go to get to Mars. Um, at the same, you know, and then Wilder Pembroke arrives, and Wilder Pembroke is the head of the military police, or the head of the National Police Force, the secret police, maybe. And he he also wants to talk about Congrosion with Janet, and he wants to talk about Econ Superb. And there's this fear that, that Congrosion is going to emigrate, right? And as we might remember from early on in the first chapter, Pembroke's initial plan of keeping Superb as a psychotherapist was to keep Congrosion insane. And, uh, and his fears of, of Congrosion's sanity emerging, you know, it's a bit com- confused here because is it his insanity that's driving him to emigrators are moments of sanity that lead him to want to emigrate. In any case, uh, it seems he wants Superb to keep Congrosian on Earth. Um, but he's, he has this fear that Congrosian is going to emigrate. And in this effort to kind of control emigration then and to keep people like Congrosian from leaving, he decides we need to really pursue a plan to start to close down the jalopy jungles, these jalopy lots. Uh, Nicole had previously had basically a, a deal with um, Looney Luke and the Jalopy Jungles, letting them operate, you know, kind of independently without too much government oversight or interference. So that that's what's going on there. Um, and then in the final section, we run into Egon Superb. This is the final scene of the chapter. We run into Egon Superb. The secret police arrive to question him. Uh, so, but Egon Superb's actually in a meeting with another one of our characters, um, Ian Duncan. Ian Duncan has felt he needed psychotherapy too, and he had previously decided with Al that he should go and talk with him because he's really messed up. And he's in the meeting, and then Superb gets this call, very sensitive, like, material from the government, and the patient's just in the room listening. Anyways, Ian Duncan hears that the government's going to go and really try to close down the jalopy jungles in order to, you know, keep Congrosion on Earth. And Ian Duncan hears this and he decides that he has to go and save Al because uh, Al Al works for these jalopy jungles and he might be kind of mixed up in the suppression of the jalopy jungles. So now Ian Duncan suddenly has a purpose in life 
besides just trying to play his classical jugs for Nicole, he has this purpose of, you know, I got to save my good friend Al Miller from, from the military, from the secret police. He also worries, of course, if Al Miller is arrested or killed in this repression of the jalopy jungles, he'll, he'll lose out his chance to, to play classical jug for Nicole. So he's somewhat personally invested in this, too. So that's chapter, chapter 10. In chapter 11, we also have four scenes. So as chapter 11 opens, we're back with Nat Flieger, Molly, and Jim Plank on this quest to, to go to Congrosian's house, right? And, you know, this whole novel, they've been on this, this side quest to, to find Congrosian's house. It's, it's so mundane. It's, 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 it's really something only, I think, Philip Dick would, would write, the, write in this way. Actually, I'm not so sure on the timeline of the novel. It's like, this seems to be like a short few, you know, why would it take more than a couple days at most to do this? And then other things seem to be taken along a longer scan of time. I, I don't know. I'd have to actually go through and see if, you know, what the timeline of this novel is. But anyways, they go to Congrosian's house. They arrive there. And Congrosian's not there, of course. We know Congrosian's floating around. He was at the hospital. He was calling the doctor. He eventually decides to emigrate to Mars. So that's what he's doing. And of course, Congrosian's not there. They find instead Beth Congrosian, Congrosian's wife, who I suppose... Uh, Richard Congrosian is just leaving at this point and you know, when he decides to go to Mars he doesn't even think much about his wife I, I don't remember any moment in which Congrosian thought about his wife in the entire course of the novel up to this point we're reminded a bit more about just how bizarre and strange this environment they're in is and this this kind of weird neighborhood that Congrosian decided to live in uh, Nat says or thinks for instance the humidity Nat found it overwhelming oppressive he could hardly breathe he wondered what the weather would do to the Ganymedian life form which was his recording apparatus it liked moisture and so perhaps it would flourish here perhaps the AM Ampac FA2 which is their recording device could even live here on its own survive in its rainforest indefinitely the environment he realized is more alien to us than Mars would be it was sobering thought Mars and Tijuana closer than Jenner and Tijuana ecologically speaking um, so that's the environment they're in. And then Mrs. Congrosian comes in. She invites them in, and they, they chit-chat a little bit. And then they find these photographs of Richard Congrosian with these chubber babies. So he's basically with these Neanderthal babies. And there are all these rumors floating around about his baby. He has children that are actually you know genetic mutants and things, and that's why he's a recluse. But um, he seems to have some kind of relationship with these Neanderthal children. They actually see him like with the set you know at the playground with these chopper babies so um he's a humanitarian i guess oh and they also talk about music so there's this question of if the choppers can't speak can they have music and and the fact that these choppers have music and have a folk tradition and have art is something that is an, a fairly important plot point in the in the later half of later part of the novel so that's that's what goes on in that story then we shift to to vince and julie um, in fact, we I think Julie calls Vince at work and she and of course, she's Vince's ex-wife and she's now shacking up with with Vince's brother. Julie is desperate. She's concerned that Chick is leaving her and, and going off and she begs for, you know, some for to get Chick back. And she begs for Vince's help in all this. Um, and, you know, Vince is pretty bitter about his brother at this point in the story. So he doesn't really... Um, commit to helping too much then carp comes carp is vince's boss right the head of this major cartel this major simulacrum maker that just lost his massive contract like a billion dollar contract to make the 
the Deralta. So Carp says, you know, I want you to use your contact with your brother, Chick, who works for Frau Zimmer Associates, to get a job there and basically to be our spy, to keep an eye on Frau Zimmer's and maybe, you know, influence it and, and send us information and help us out there. So then Vince kind of agrees to do that. What can he do? It's his boss. And then he calls uh, Dr. Egon superb because he thinks that's where Chick might be or he might know where Chick is. So he, he calls Dr. Egon superb. And that's, that's the whole scene. That's the second scene of chapter 11. Um, in, in scene three, uh, it's, we're back with the government actors. We're back with Nicole and, and Herman Gehring and, and Pembroke. And Nicole is becoming increasingly stressed at her work and frustrated with, with things. She's especially frustrated about what to do about the Looney Luke jalopy jungles. Uh, Pembroke brings news. He's, he's kind of a, a character who's able to always bring information to, to Nicole because he's, of course, the head of the police. And the information he brings to her now is that Carp has infiltrated Frau Zimmer. So we just read about this in the previous scene, and already the government knows that Carp is going to infiltrate Frau Zimmer with, with a spy, and that spy we know is, is Vince. But anyway, she proceeds to see the jug performance. Oh, no, she proceeds, she learns about the jug performance coming up, and she's a bit disappointed. So this is the Al Miller, Ian Duncan performance that's been scheduled before. And she hears about that, and she prepares to see it, but she really thinks this is going to be a silly, ridiculous scene. So she, like us, has a hard time believing that you can get classical music out of, out of a jug. Um, she has a lot of hope, though, that the situation she's in, this feeling that she's kind of losing control of, of the situation, can be fixed by a new Deralta. She thinks killing the old Deralta, who she doesn't even like, getting a new one, can maybe change history, and this can might be able to undercut the rise of the Goltz movement. She then gets the news that they, they caught Congrosion at a Looney Luke's. So, you know, again, we, we know this, we have this, we know that Chick and Congrosion have met at a Looney Luke's. And she just got news that, that Congrosion has been arrested at this kind of suppression of the Looney Luke's jalopy jungles. So Nicole's role here is really more just to, to show her getting news about the things that are happening in the world and to let us know that the suppression of the jalopy jungles is ongoing and that in that they have, they have gotten a hold of the, the previous at-large and in the wind Congrosion. So then at the end of chapter 11, we're able to, to see the scene at the Jalopy jungle in which Grosjean is arrested, the, the thing that Nicole was just referring to. And it's, there's a chance for like all these characters to get together. So we know Ian has left Dr. Superb's office and he wants to save Al Miller by going to save him, by freeing him from the Jalopy jungle to save the Jug Act. We have Chick there in Grosjean. So we got all these characters there. And the police come. Uh, the secret police come trying to arrest Kingrosian. Ian kicks one of the, actually, the, the policemen. Um, and everyone's about to be arrested. And then Nicole arrives. And so she's just arrived from the previous scene. She's, she arrives to confront Kingrosian directly. And Kingrosian begins to freak out. to Because she doesn't want to play for Nicole. And it seems the whole reason Nicole wants Kingrosian back is because she wants to have good music at the White House. She's sick of these bad f amateur folk routines. Um, but he freaks out. He doesn't want to play for her. He's got all these anxieties built up. He's worried about his phobic body odor and his invisibility. And he, you know, he, he's in love with Nicole. So he's kind of a, a basket case at this point. 
Al Miller actually very bravely, I think, approaches Nicole and asks if ask her if she'll let Kingrosian emigrate. Now Miller is the guy who's running the 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 jalopy jungles, of course, right? So she he's trying to see if maybe there's a compromise here. Maybe you know Kingrosian's so far gone that she'll let him him emigrate. And we're just reminded again of just the huge impact Nicole seems to have on on the men on Earth. In the end, no one's arrested. Um, Chick decides not to emigrate. And again, it's because of the power of Nicole that changes, that lets him change his mind about emigration. Of course, Congrosian is collected and he leaves with Nicole. So the situation is diffused and Nicole gets Congrosian back and no one else is arrested. And Chick deciding not, now not to emigrate goes back to Maury Frauzimmer and Maury, you know, invites him back right away because um, Maury now just got this huge job. He's now in charge of making the Duralta. He's been promoted to a gay. He's got the Gimenez. He's got the knowledge that of uh, the truth of the government. And that's a big break for him. And he is very, very eager to invite his former uh, salesperson, Chick Strike Rock, back into the company. Okay, so then we get to chapter 12, the last chapter I'll look at today this this chapter has three scenes and it's this the most important thing about chapter 12 is it closes up the story of of al miller and, and ian duncan um in fact if you read the short story novelty act that like actually the story novelty act is is a somewhat condensed version of the al miller ian duncan story i, I don't know i think maybe they're brothers in the story here they're not but i forget but in, you know, the, the basic plot happens here. Um, and it's, it's almost like if you took the Al Miller, Ian Duncan story out, I think this, sto- this story, hold, this novel holds together. This is maybe the oddest thread in, in the tale. But, you know, it, especially on the themes of emigration, of alienation, of, of people feeling rootless and without direction, I, I think it, it fits um, quite nicely into it. It's, it's not completely odd that it's here. But, you know, Dick doesn't really have room for it in the climax of the tale, so he, he kind of closes the door on, on the Al and Ian story. But we don't start with them. We start with Vince and Chick, and we get a short little scene between Vince Strike Rock and Chick Strike Rock, where, of course, Vince now wants a job from Chick. And previously in the story, it was Chick wants a job from Vince, and now it's turned around. Vince has been ordered by his boss to get a job at Frog Zimmer Associates. Um... Chick is start you know now he just got his job back at Frost Zimmer's and he's very coy with Vince on his job and basically you know Chick is very indecisive here because previously he wanted to leave Earth and leave Julie but now he says like I'll get you a job at Frost Zimmer's if if you let me have Julie if you let me have your ex-wife um, now of course Vince knew earlier about the Daralta situation even before Chick does because Vince worked for Carp before. Um, and we, he actually knows that the new Deralta is going to be named Dieter Hoagland. And at this time, they start to get news through the media, through the, the general media, which often is quite automated here. Like the distribution of the media is automated through like loudspeakers and, and machines and stuff. And even the collection of news, as we saw in, back in the first chapter, is done by robotic and automated simulacrum reporters but the news starts to come out of course this is all fabricated this is just um because the Deralt is not even a real person but they start the news starts to get out because they're prepping the situation by saying that Deralt is dying um and this is just the selling of news to 
the lower classes in the society, the people who aren't gays, the bays, they get all this, you know, all these lies from the government. That's just like the way the society functions. The whole society is based on it. The whole political system is based on a lie, of course. So that's what happens with Vince and Chick. Then we shift to Nicole and, and Garing, and we get a little bit more on this deal. Nothing really happens with this deal, though, because, you know, Garing will be killed off soon enough. But essentially, it's rest again on Garing seizing control of the Third Reich, perhaps breaking off from Hitler, maybe assassinating Hitler, or just getting the Third Reich out of Hitler's hands. Garing's a bit skeptical because he says, you don't really understand how important the leader is to the Nazi movement and, and fascism. And Nicole says, you know, you just got to do it or not. You know, do you have a deal or not? And we actually have returned to this theme of emasculation. We've seen emasculation come again and again in the themes of these characters who feel overpowered by Nicole and the matriarchy. And then as a result, become kind of aimless and bothered and mentally ill. And here we have Nicole reflecting on this theme of emasculation via the Third Reich and via Gehring. So here's what Dick writes. Nicole rose to her feet. The Reich's marshal sat slumped over broodingly, evidently unaware that she had risen. She walked from the room, leaving him. What a dismal, contemptible individual, she thought, emasculated by the power arrangement of the Third Reich, unable to do anything on his own as a unique individual. No wonder they lost the war. And to think that in World War I, he was a gallant, brave ace, a member of Rectal Friends Flying Circus, flying one of those thin, flimsy wire and wood, wood airplanes. Hard to believe that he was the same man. You know, so fascism and the hierarchy of fascism emasculated Hermann Goering the same way Nicole is emasculating all these these men around her in in the society. And she's very worried uh, above and beyond this deal with with Goering, which in some ways is almost a back burner thing in her mind. She's she's thinking about more important things like the White House performances and Goltz and the new Daralta and everything. But she is worrying that the situation is, is gradually getting out of control, and she really wants to find a way to stop Goltz. She realizes that because Goltz has this von Lessing principle that he may essentially be immortal, and this is a concern. Um, she, she wants to find a way to stop him. She doesn't really know how. And then we go to the third scene, which is the, a rather long scene, which, which closes up the story of, of Ian and Al. So... Um, as the, as the section opens, Ian has a dream about Nicole, probably a common phenomenon among men on Earth in this world, but he dreams of Nicole as an old woman. Um, Al wakes him up and insists that they got to do their performance. Uh, they meet, you know, they, they meet Slezak, who helps, you know, set up. He's like the agent guy who's going to help them get set up and for their performance. They talk about the classical jug. He wants them to add folk music, though. He says that this isn't really a classical instrument. It's a folk music instrument. So why don't you play folk music? And he actually says, I want you to play. Um, it's Rock of My Sarah Jane. I actually had to look up that song. It's a real song. But, um, you know, you find some people performing it on YouTube. I, you know, it seems to be a rather, from my perspective, an obscure folk song. Um, uh, he does ask them about this papula that they brought along. Now, if you remember, the papula that they took from the jalopy jungle, which has mind control abilities, was used to help get them this gig, right, in the White House in the first place. And so they still have the papula there. But they, they insist that it's just like a totem. It's just a, a mascot almost, and that's not um, important. And then they have the performance, and they meet Nicole, and they play some music for her. They play some Schubert, so I think it's the trout. 
they play for him and they play some other stuff. And Nicole actually recognizes Chick from, no, not Chick. She recognizes Ian and Al from the from the incident at the Jalopy Jungle, and they're kind of shocked and surprised that they're even remembered. And now they do their performance, but eventually the Papula bites Nicole, and this is the same thing that happens in the short story novelty act. And there, it's it's clearly stated that it was Looney Luke who's trying to get back at Nicole that programmed the Palupa to bite Nicole. Anyways, with Nicole bit. You know, there's going to have to be the question now just of punishment. It, the assumption, of course, is that they programmed the Palua or they trained it um, to to bite Nicole. So they have to be punished. And they're dragged away and eventually Al and Ian are mind wiped. That's the punishment they get. They say their final goodbyes of these two lifelong friends because they know that even though they're going to live, they're not going to remember each other. So it's kind of quite sad. And and that's what happens. That's that's the the climax of their their meeting with Nicole. It, it actually turned out to be a total disaster. The next day, they're mind wiped. They don't really have a clear memory of of anything. Ian returns home, and Ian continues. The one thing he does remember is he continues to have this obsession with Nicole. That that's kind of a permanent thing. It, it never really leaves his, him. And then Looney Luke arrives. And Looney Luke arrives. He has a jalopy, and he tells. Ian, that that you're going to get into the Stralopia and we're going to go to Mars and and Al is going to come along with them. And then the way this story ends is that these two lifelong friends have to re, be reacquainted in a new world and not having a future on Earth anymore. Looney Luke, because his business is being suppressed by the government, and Ian and Al, because they've been mind wiped and really don't know where they are in the world, decide to start a new life on, on Mars. It's kind of a nice ending. It's a sweet little ending. And we, we, we have this idea that these two friends are going to be have, you know become friends again and going to have a new start to the relationship. And, and all the happiness they had as French friends will be able to be relived. And in fact, the final sentence of chapter 12 is, he, le- he lay back against the side of the tilapia and relaxed as the ship shot upwards into the night emptiness and the new planet which lay ahead. So it, it ends a kind of on this optimistic note. And, and that closes up the story of, of Al and, and Ian and, and actually Looney Luke, too. So they're off. Um, and that ends chapter 12. It ends what I want to say in this episode about, you know, about, about the simulacrum. So we're not quite done yet. We, we still have to finish up the novel. Uh, we got three more chapters to deal with, chapters 13, 14, and 15. So if you're reading along, take a look at them. These chapters focus mostly on the political aftermath of, of the story. So it's centered much more on Nicole and Congrosian, who's now with Nicole, Pembroke, Goltz, and these characters. And we also uh, finish up the storyline of, of the side quest to, see, of, to go to Congrosian's house. And we're, it's going to be, but everything's going to be much more grand. We're going to get a vision of really what's happening to the world as all these pieces that have been put into place um, begin to fulfill their, their various destinies and fates. So I'll talk about that in the, in the next episode where I'll close up um, my analysis and my review of, of The Simulacrum. It's a good novel. I encourage you to read it if you haven't been reading along. Um, but that does it. So I'm sure there's a lot I missed, a lot I misinterpreted, a lot that there's different points of view on. So if you have those feelings about this novel, please leave your comments below. I will get back to you. I'll try to respond. Uh, if you know, I don't always get notices when people leave comments, so I don't always I have to go back and check. So, but if you do leave, and I'll I'll try to 
Um, I try to look for them from time to time. The best way to contact me, though, is to send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but that's all for now. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll be back next time with my finale, my conclusion to my comments on, on the simulacrum. And contentment forever If you